thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. The Bible reading tonight is Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. I I think some of you might be familiar with the concept of Easter eggs. And the fact that I've just said some of you makes the rest of you think that I'm probably not talking about little chocolate things covered in tinfoil that we get around Easter, but about those uh, hidden messages, those uh, inside jokes, those images that are found in video games and in films. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard the term before. I, I only learned about it like last year. I think I'd gone to see some movie. I came home to Google what, the, what people thought about the movie and came across this idea about Easter eggs that were in the film. All these little hidden allusions to other films and uh, pictures and things that were somewhat hidden to the casual observer. Uh, and it's actually a really kind of handy idea. I'm not sure if you are familiar with it or not. Everyone I've asked has said no. So maybe I've just stumbled into some little corner of geekdom that uh, nobody else knows about. But I think a few of you get the idea, if, if nothing else. Uh, and uh, the passage that we're looking at tonight in Matthew chapter 4, to some degree, is full of Easter eggs. Uh, and uh, if you have a look at it, the kind of the casual read, even if you're relatively familiar with the text, there's a whole bunch of stuff in it that Matthew has deliberately put in, not in order to be kind of secretive or to hide things, but actually to give us some deeper insight into the story that he's trying to tell. And so what I'd like to do this evening is uh, go through these 11 verses in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, uh, point out some of the Easter eggs and the impact that that has on the story as a whole, and then as we're trying to do with this series, try to figure out what that means for us as we follow after Jesus. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open uh, to Matthew chapter 4 so you can kind of see where we're going with this stuff, whether that's a a hard copy or a soft copy, either way is fine with me, but have, have a look at the text if at all possible. Now, the story itself, I suppose, is is fairly straightforward. There's both an ordinary level of the story, and then there's this extraordinary level of the story, isn't there? But it's fairly easy to understand. At the ordinary level, we have an example.
example of Jesus who is being tempted. We've all been tempted before, haven't we? That desire to do something that we either know is wrong or tempted to do something that we have decided that we would not do. Uh, and then when we get to the moment, we actually end up doing it. Whether it's right or wrong is, is, is kind of neither here nor there. We've all experienced temptation. And so it's important, I think, to note that Jesus, for all that he is and, and all that he claims to be, is very much like us in that, that he too was tempted as we are tempted. The book of Hebrews kind of confirms that. But this temptation scene is, even just on a casual reading, unlike anything you or I have ever really experienced, I'm guessing. Uh, I would say that, you know, there's been times when I've been really tempted. I have never been this next level tempted. I've never been in the wilderness with the devil taking me on a world tour and tempting me to do some extraordinary things. Don't know why he'd bother to some degree, but this is like next level stuff, isn't it? And it tells us something really important about Jesus. Jesus has uh, just been baptized. He's not yet started his ministry. And yet the very first thing he does is he's taken into the wilderness. There's this kind of dramatic moment in time in Jesus' ministry. And so even if you know nothing more of the story, even if you're really unfamiliar with the, the story of Jesus, there's something about this that sets this apart, right? And even these temptations are not just kind of a little bit irregular in terms of the sorts of things that we might be tempted to do or not to do, but they're also things that we only really find here in Matthew's account. You read through the rest of the gospel and you don't hear that Jesus kind of had periods of time when he was continually tempted. It all kind of is summarized in this spot. That's not to say that Jesus wasn't tempted elsewhere, but there's something that Matthew wants to say that this sets the scene for. Right? You're with me so far. Right? It's fairly obvious just in how it's written. But there are a number of, as I said, these little Easter eggs, these allusions to previous stories that actually give us some insight into what Matthew is doing. So if you have your Bible and you've found the page again, let's have a bit of a look at it. So it begins by saying, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in that section alone, there's a couple little Easter eggs. The first of them is the simple fact that Jesus is led into the wilderness by God. You might think, okay, uh, fine. But that story actually recounts uh, the essential foundational story of the people of Israel. I think we're familiar with foundational stories. Um, the Anzacs at Gallipoli is a foundational story for us in Australia. Uh, even Captain Cook's landing at Botany Bay is a foundational story, although we're, th we're working through how to understand and interpret that these days, right? But they're foundational stories. They explain something about who we are. And for the people of Israel, their foundational story was that they were enslaved in Egypt, they were saved by God, and then they were led by God into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, second Easter egg, they were tested. So there's this kind of remarkable kind of parallel between the two. Uh, for the people of Israel, the, the time in the wilderness became another kind of foundational part of their story. And it had both a positive and a negative approach. So when you read through all of the Old Testament, you'll find that when they talk about the wilderness, they sometimes talk about it very positively. And they essentially point out the fact that when they were in the wilderness, they were alone with God. And I don't mean, you know, kind of the alone that we feel when we go out on some walk uh, on the, on, in the bush or uh, we're on some cliff face and we kind of see the sunrise and we experience creation. We kind of have a sense of God's presence. It, it was different than that. The people of Israel were with God in the wilderness. He was physically and visibly present with them. 
Uh, the story is that when they went into the wilderness, he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they built the tabernacle, the kind of traveling church that they walked around, or walked around with, God's presence was there. When Moses would go to the tent of meeting and speak with God face to face, the presence of God was so powerful that his face actually began to reflect the glow of the glory of God. When the people of Israel said that they were in the wilderness with God, they were with God. They were alone with God. That's the positive side. The negative side of their wilderness experience was that while they were in the wilderness, they were repeatedly put into situations where they were, their, their, their trust of God was put to the test. They were repeatedly put in situations where they had to trust God. They had, they had no one else to turn to. They were alone in the wilderness and time after time after time after time, they failed. Well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Jesus here does exactly what the people of Israel did. He's baptized. He comes out of the water. Even that's a little bit of an Easter egg, isn't it? Because the people of Israel came out of Egypt and went through the Red Sea. The waters parted. The waters came back over the Egyptians. And immediately after that, right, they're led into the wilderness. Jesus here is set up kind of like the ideal Israel. He's redoing the same things that the people of Israel did, which is a really kind of intriguing. Matthew has actually picked some of this stuff up a little bit earlier in his uh, gospel when he mentions a, uh, a prophecy in Hosea 11 verse 1, when he says that this was to fulfill the, the, the prophetic writing that said, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea was speaking about the people of Israel. Matthew was speaking about Jesus coming out of, uh, out of Egypt. And so Jesus is the son of God like Israel is the son of God. Do, do you see what Matthew's doing here? So there's, he's just kind of setting this up as not just an extraordinary, dramatic encounter between Jesus and the devil in the wilderness. He's setting this up as a replay of the people of Israel. We're not going to go that slowly all the way through the text in case you're thinking, well, we're never going to get this done at this rite. But let me take one more verse and show you another little Easter egg. Some of you may notice this one because it's after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I don't think the second part of that sentence was necessary, right? It's probably one of the least necessary parts of scripture, really. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, do we really need to know that he was Hungry, but Matthew has told us just to clarify, right? But it's the 40 days and 40 nights that are kind of the Easter egg here. If you're going to do something biblical in life, it should be in 40s. 40 days, 40 years, really good, solid biblical period of time, right? Uh, and there are two characters in particular who did some remarkable things, just like Jesus does here, over 40 days and 40 nights, the first of them is Moses. Moses was the first leader of the people of Israel. It was Moses who went up the mountain of God and for 40 days and 40 nights was without food and without drink, we're told, as he received from the hand of God, not only the Ten Commandments, but all of the law, the entire outline of what it looked like for the people of Israel to be in relationship with him. That's the first encounter. The second is a fellow named Elijah who is one of the most significant prophetic figures in the Old Testament. You can read his story at the end of the book of 1 Kings and the start of 2 Kings. Uh, and he bursts onto the scene in 1 Kings at a period of time when the people of Israel had wandered so far from God that it was almost impossible to find someone who worshipped him. 
And Elijah travels and spends 40 days and 40 nights to get to the mountain of God. And when he's at the mountain of God, he is asked by God, why are you here? He says, well, they're trying to kill me. There's nobody else left. Like, it's, all, it's, it's over. The game is done. And God says, no, there are still people who are following me. And here's the task that I've called you to. So at a time when the people of Israel were being formed in the wilderness, you have Moses spending 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain with God. And at a time when the people of Israel needed to be called back to faithfulness in perhaps the most extreme example and case, you have Elijah, 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, just like Moses and Elijah. A little bit later in the story, Jesus is transfigured. They see his glory and two figures appear with Jesus. One of them is Moses and one of them is Elijah representing the law and the prophets. So Jesus here is not just doing what Israel was meant to do. He's also kind of representing the greatest figures of Israel's history, the Moses and the Elijah. So Matthew's already trying to set this up as more than just the start of a significant ministry. He's doing something more. And then, of course, we get into the Uh, The uh, temptation itself. And let me read this section to you. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. You remember how I talked about the people of Israel going into the wilderness and then being tested. What's really intriguing is that their testing has some parallels to the testing that Jesus here faces. We're not surprised, are we, that the first temptation is about food? 40 days and 40 nights without food, and he was hungry, and the devil comes and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? If you really are the son of God, right? And the temptation is not to do a magic trick and turn stone into bread. The temptation is actually for Jesus to provide for himself and to not trust in God's provision. And this was the precise situation that the people of Israel faced when they went into the wilderness. The very first temptations, the very first tests that they failed were wrapped around food and water. They are rescued by God, they're in the wilderness, and they find some water, but it's it's not fit to drink. And they complain. And then a day or two later, they don't have enough meat, and so they complain. And they don't just complain and say, I wish we had better food. They actually say things like, it was better when we were in Egypt. It would be better for us to be enslaved and have real good food than to be free, rescued by God, and not. They actually questioned the goodness of God. They said, did God bring us into the wilderness just to kill us here? We could have died in Egypt with plenty of food. Here, where the people of Israel failed, Jesus does not. He's been led into the wilderness. He's been led into the wilderness by God. And so he does not choose to provide for himself. The second kind of little Easter egg in this temptation piece is actually the fact that Jesus continually cites Scripture. Did you notice that? It's kind of this battle of the Bible knowledge, isn't it? 
right? Everything that Satan comes up with, Jesus is able to respond with Scripture. And all of the Scriptures, this is a good clue to finding little Easter eggs in the Bible, is actually looking up little footnotes that are there. All three of these quotations are found in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. It's uh, another book of the law. And it's told in the last days that the people of Israel are in the wilderness. And in that context, Jesus uses language from the law of Moses to speak into those situations. You don't live on bread alone, but on the word of God he will provide. When Satan takes him to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down, the temptation is not, again, for Jesus to kind of show himself to be miraculous. The temptation is to say, force God to save you. Force him to act. Force God to do what you want him to do. Leap off this thing, and if his plans for you are so important, he'll rescue you, and you know he will. And Jesus is like, that's not going to happen. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. And then there's another little Easter egg in this final little section where the devil takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. At the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses, who has been leading the people of Israel for 40 years, has been leading them to the edge of what was called the promised land, what we would call Palestine, but was not to enter. God takes him to the high mountain and shows him all the land, shows him all the places where the people of Israel will one day settle, shows him all the nations. But here the temptation is to worship someone other than God. And for the people of Israel, this was perhaps their greatest test. If you know the story of the Exodus, while Moses is up the mountain receiving the law of God, the people are down at the foot of the mountain making a golden calf to worship. All the way through the Old Testament, the the greatest stumbling block for the people of Israel was to actually trust God alone, to worship him alone. They just just couldn't do it. It was worshiping God plus. They worshiped God plus. They wanted something else all the time. God himself was not sufficient. He was not enough all on his own. And so they worshiped other gods. And here, what do we find in Jesus? Well, full obedience, full trust, a refusal to force God's hand but to be obedient and submissive to his will. It's a pretty remarkable little story, isn't it? And we have to ask the question then, what is Matthew trying to do? What is he trying to tell us here? And I think there's something really significant to see Jesus as the ideal Israel. Because what it suggests is that wherever Jesus, whatever Jesus does is what Israel was meant to do. And whoever Jesus, uh, whatever Jesus was, uh, was, was uh, sorry, who he was is who Israel was meant to be. He symbolizes the people of God. He has kind of taken on all of the people of God as kind of as represented in himself. And if that seems weird, it's not actually that weird. Uh, we're used to uh, ascribing leaders with kind of the rep- as representing their whole people, right? So think about the president of the United States. He represents everything American for good or for ill, right? Uh, there are periods of history, you think about World War I and World War II, where we talk about whole nations associated with one single leader. Now, you drill down into it, there's a whole lot more going on, but we can talk about entire movements, entire nations, entire, entire organizations by talking about the leadership. Jesus here is basically being presented as the leader. He represents the people of God in this remarkably profound way. 
And that drives us back into the Old Testament to ask, so what were the people of Israel meant to do? Who were they meant to be? And in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God actually tells the people what they are meant to do. They were to be, he says, a kingdom of priests. They were to be an entire nation of priests. Now, we don't use that language much, although I have to admit I get that a fair amount. When I go to the soccer fields and I'm coaching and people say, what do you do? I say, I work at a church. And they say, oh, you're a priest. And I'm like, close enough for government work. So, yes, I'm a priest. But we're unfamiliar with the language. But in, in the ancient world, priests were the ones who mediated between the people and the gods, right? So when you wanted to know how to live... I would mediate the instruction to you. When you wanted to present something to God, I would bring that on your behalf. I was called to live a holy, separate, set-apart life. I was to live out the instructions of how to live with the gods, right? This is the way it worked. The people of Israel were meant to be an example, a living, breathing example of what it looked like to live in relationship with God. And as an entire nation, they were called to not only live that out, but to teach those around them about what it looked like and to answer their questions and to bring them into the presence of God. They were given a mission from the very beginning and they failed time and time and time and time and time again until Jesus comes. And he takes all of their failure and he takes all of their history and he redoes it and he does it right. Matthew is telling us something really, really significant about Jesus here. And it has some really important implications for what it means to follow him. Uh, When we opened this series, we talked about the fact that following Jesus does not require us to uh, believe or to know too much or to even change our behavior. Jesus called his first disciples and made no conditions apart from follow me. And if they were willing to follow him, that was enough. But I also mentioned when we opened the series that when we begin to follow Jesus, pretty quickly there's a bit of a crisis that comes. And the crisis is that Jesus doesn't let us not answer the question of who he is. We can't read very far into Matthew. We're like four chapters in, not even all the way through the fourth chapter. And we're already confronted with who Matthew thinks Jesus is. And Jesus is not just some really nice historical figure. He's not some really wonderful teacher. Matthew is saying that Jesus represents the entire history of the people of Israel, that he embodies in himself the mission that God has given to them in a way that nobody else has, that he takes all of the Old Testament and takes it on his own shoulders and does it right. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to begin to put his teachings into practice, if you're going to explore who he is, it's pretty quick and you get to the point where you have to ask yourself, who is this man and do I believe this? Now, you don't have to believe right away. You don't have to set aside your doubts and your questions in chapter 4. The disciples, they just bumbled on through the whole book. The religious leaders took forever and eventually decided Jesus was a complete fraud. The crowds were amazed and never really got much further than that. You don't have to decide now, but let me tell you here now, the decision is looming because of passages like this. And for those of us who believe in Jesus who have followed him and have come to a point where we believe that he is indeed the representation of the people of Israel, this has some really significant implications for us as well. 
Because it tells us that the entire story of Israel was funneled, shall we say, into the person of Jesus. And once Jesus has died and been raised again and has established the church, the story of the people of God expands out again and includes you and I. And so we have become the inheritors of not only the promises, but also the hopes that God had for his people. We are meant to be a kingdom of priests. We are meant to be those who take the message of God to the world, who are meant to be those who live out what it looks like to be in relationship with God, to be those whose lives are changed by Jesus, to be those who actually live that stuff out, who answer people's questions, who bring them and introduce them and invite them to follow Jesus themselves. This is the task that we have been given if we place our faith in Jesus. It was never about just coming to a point of belief as if that were enough. By virtue of placing our faith in Jesus, we have become part of a much, 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 much bigger story. One that brings with it a mission built in. It's not an optional extra. We can't say we follow Jesus. We can't say we believe in him and then never have anything more to do with our world. We can't say that we believe in Jesus and follow him and never let it change our behavior. We can't say we follow Jesus and believe in him and not grow in our understanding of all that it meant for him to take on the story of the people of Israel. Following Jesus will inevitably bring a crisis of faith. It will drive us to deeper knowledge. It will drive us to a changed behavior that can only come through his own power. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. So there's your challenge. Do not forget what you have been called to. Now, we are not those who um, have been called to just believe or to increase our knowledge, but are called to that same mission. Let me remind you, when you leave the church this evening, look above the door before you go. We have a quote from Jesus there. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. You kind of miss it now because it's been there for so long. Don't miss it. If you follow Jesus, this is what you have been invited into.